This is KMUW Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT Democracy on Tap is a community engagement event of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on June 5th at Roxy's downtown. All right, you guys, let's get started tonight. I'm Sarah Jane Crespo, and welcome to Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. We're very excited to have these conversations every month with KMUW, and um, tonight we conclude our three-part series on the environment. Um, we discussed climate, and in January, or I'm sorry, two months ago, and then we discussed um, energy, and now we are on to sustainability tonight. So. This is it for environment. It'll be a very good discussion. Um, and then July, August, and September, we will cover education in a little more depth than we've been able to in the past. Um, so we'll kind of tackle that, and those will all be great conversations as well. I hope you will join us for those. Um, we'd like to thank our partners. Uh, first off, uh, Roxy's downtown for this wonderful venue and the food. Roxy's is a wonderful partner for us and a home for Engage ICT all of this year. So we are very, very grateful for that. Um, we also have a very faithful partner in the Wichita Public Library. Um, they produce, oh yes, let's have a round of applause for the library. <laughs> They produce uh, further reading and resources for every topic that we discuss at Engage ICT. And in fact, we have all of the uh, previous topics uh, resources here as well. So if you missed a conversation and you were very interested in whatever it was, you can come up and, and get one of those handouts um, before you leave today. You can also see videos and hear podcasts from previous discussions at Engage ICT. Org. We have a lot of resources there as well, um, so keep that in mind. Did you guys know that today is World Environment Day? I didn't even plan that. <laughs> I should have said that I planned that. Um, but no, so it, that's just, that's a cool little extra. Enjoy. Happy World Environment Day. Um, let's get going here. I'll introduce our panel and uh, we'll have brief discussions and then we'll kind of jump in. Um, as you come up with questions that you would like to ask the panel, um, there should be uh, Q and question slips on the tables. Um, if you don't see one, uh, wave your hand over here and Asha will uh, help you out. Um, and then after you fill out the slip, she'll also collect that for you. Um, and we will, we will get your questions answered. So let's start here with Susan Erlenwein, who is with Sedgwick County Environmental Resources. Susan, will you share uh, what you do and how your work relates to the subject of sustainability here locally? Sure. I'm the director of Environmental Resources, and we do a variety of things from we've done sand pit studies to determine if stormwater runoff into the sand pits pollutes the water, which is groundwater, it's the top of your water table. And yes, it does. Uh, we've helped with uh, building the arena, making it more sustainable with the energy savings that's been put into the building, with the lighting and the windows. And we uh, work with trash quite a bit, solid waste, household hazardous waste, and the proper disposal and recycling of materials. So we try to help the community do the right thing. We just recently had an electronic waste event and collected over half a million pounds of electronic waste from the public. 
and that was all with a company that has zero landfill policy, so it was all recycled. So we're very proud of that, and none of it went overseas to China. So that's even better. And we've had waste tire roundups, and we'll do a one, another one of those next year, where um, over the five events we've had with tires that nobody wants, we've collected over 835,000 tires. So it's getting it out in the environment where it holds water and it's great for mosquito breeding habitats uh, to a better use. So we try to do what we can to help. Let's welcome Nancy to our panel tonight. Next, we have Mike Hastings with Pro Kansas Recycling. Will you explain what you do, Mike, and how the recycling center began? Welcome, Susan, to our panel. What did I say? Nancy. <gasps> I apologize, Susan. I know who you are. <laughs> Let's all welcome Susan to the panel. <laughs> Yay. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. That's Mike. all right. Uh, I'm Mike Hastings. I'm president of Pro Kansas Recycling. The actual name of the organization is Plastics Recycling of Kansas. And then we got the acronym Pro Kansas Recycling. But we started out just collecting plastics and we started out having once a month in, a, in various parking lots a collection of plastics but graduated to a situation we got a building uh, the city of Wichita loaned us uh, they loaned it to us for about a year and a half we've been there 14 years so that worked out rather well uh, we collect 16, 17, maybe 18 categories of recyclables, probably the most of anybody in Wichita, anywhere from uh, the plastics and the metals and the paper to batteries and eyeglasses that are turned over to the Optimist Club and so on and so forth. Uh, we probably, I quit counting, but we probably uh, recycled about 25 million pounds of recyclables so far, which I think is pretty good for an organization where we don't go out and pick things up. People come to Pro Kansas and drop things off, but you can drive in. You don't have to worry about rain and snow and such. Drive in, park, uh, distribute your recyclables in the proper places and drive out the back and be on your way. So it's quite an organization. It's uh, virtually all volunteer. We have two paid employees. We also have an education program Beth McDonald runs and she gets in front of about 2,000 elementary and high school kids every year with that program, so she does a heck of a job. And that, that gets them involved in the recycling and the sustainability. Um, but we're a piece of sustainability. There's a wide area of things that people have to think about in order to make sure that when you get to 50 years from now, we're still going to have water and we're still going to have food and we're still going to have, uh, I don't know, maybe that wind-up computer sitting in front of you or it's it's the one run by the gerbil in the cage <laughs> but at least we'll have resources but uh, that's pro kansas welcome mike to the panel <laughs> then we have misty cavanaugh with dylan's 
Stores. Um, will you describe your path and what you do at Dillon's now? Sure. Um, good evening, everybody. I'm Misty Cavanaugh. I work at Dillon's, and my current role there is safety manager. So you're probably wondering why is a safety manager on a sustainability panel? My prior roles have been involved greatly in our perishable donation program. We've done a lot of waste reduction in other areas as well. And my prior role, I worked a lot with source reduction and I was a shrink manager at that point in time. So even though I've changed roles, I've still maintained my aspect of helping with the Perishable Donation Program. I'm part of the operations team for Dillon's. So I'm involved a lot in what we are doing as a company because Dillon's is part of Kroger. So as a whole, we do quite a bit when it comes to sustainability and they have quite a few goals out there that they want to reach. And so I'm just here to share what I know about all that. Thank you. Welcome, Misty. Last on the line there, we have Nancy Larson with Kansas State University. And uh, will you talk a little bit about your department and the biggest changes that you've seen over the years? Sure. And you can call me Susan, no problem, right, Susan? We've known each other and worked together for decades. So um, I'm glad to be here. Um, I work with a group called the Pollution Prevention Institute. We've been around about 30 years. And our primary um, work, uh, we are 100% grant funded, but our primary work is to work with industry and help them reduce emissions, whether that's air emissions, waste, um, energy, water, uh, reduce emissions at the source. So we are an engineering, primarily an engineering program, uh, and we use interns to work with companies like Dillon's to identify um, source reduction or pollution prevention opportunities. How do you reduce at the source? So instead of treating that waste at the end of the pipe, if you will, to give you an illustration, we don't even put it in the pipe. And that can save companies a lot of money. So we work constantly to make the business case for source reduction. And um, uh, we do a variety of work with different industry and, and some other um, side types of projects, too. All right, welcome, Nancy. Okay, Susan, I want to come back to you, and if, if any of you guys want to jump in on this question, I, I want you to kind of just set the, set the stage here and help people understand what sustainability as a term really means, what that means uh, in an actionable way as well. Okay. Sustainability is the ability to meet the needs of the current generation without compromising the needs of future generations. So basically you don't want to use everything up and not have anything for the future, whether that's water or mineral resources, food resources, and that involves whether it's using it or polluting it to the point where you can't use it. Uh, you, we look at the carrying capacity that could be for an area or the world, and that deals with the population base versus the resources. Do you have enough resources to feed your population, uh, give them water, food, and materials that they need? Our population worldwide was pretty constant and just barely was growing up to about 1950. And we had less than two, mil two billion people in the world at that point. Now we're over seven billion, just adding another 70 years to that. So it's quite a huge jump. Part of that is better medicines that are out there, prenatal care, 
OSHA with helping people at work so they don't have as many deaths from work-related accidents. But still, we're climbing at a tremendous rate, and the use of materials is not keeping up with the climb of the population. And so we have to look at resources. We have what we call renewable resources, which is renewable in our lifetime, food and water, hopefully. And then you uh, don't eat all of the fish before they reproduce or eat all the seeds before you, you keep seeds for using in the next year. So you work with the material to make sure you have them for the future. But when you have non-renewable resources, those are not renewable in our lifetime. And you're looking at the metals and other materials that we mine from the earth. Mining causes a lot of pollution, disruption of habitat. And then you have that material left over when you get into Mike's area of recycling. And it takes less energy and water used to recycle something than through the mining and milling process. So it's very important for us to recycle. Because of that, uh, we use less material overall. So sustainability really is dealing with population and the resources we need. Can we keep it for the future the way we have it now and make it even better? And um, what about locally? At a Kansas level or even a Wichita level, how does the, uh, what's the environment look like in that way? Well, it depends on what politician you're talking to. But uh, I have uh, worked with sustainability and tried to get uh, energy efficiency with county buildings. Uh, other companies are doing the same thing. Dylan says, uh, Misty mentioned it's doing quite a bit in your food waste and cutting back on that. So there are different companies that are doing a lot. And we have uh, wind energy now and some solar energy, cutting back some on the fossil fuels, which are not renewable. So we are trying to work in different areas, but we're not leading the nation in that area. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about business practices um, and what, what has happened in the past uh, and what's going on right now and maybe even what, what businesses are, are moving toward in the future. Uh, Nancy, I don't know if you want to jump in to start us off with that. Um, what, are, what are businesses' effects on our ability to achieve sustainability and, uh, and what's the progress there? Say, yes, okay, great. Um, we have obviously made um, huge strides as compared to the 70s where we were really in the Industrial Revolution and was before EPA was formed and we had, you know, literally um, rivers on fire because of so much solvent that was going into the rivers. We had massive contamination, but we know better now. We have learned. Um, we've made a lot of progress. Um, we, there is a lot of demand, just like Susan said. Our population is growing. There's a lot of demand on these resources and on industry to produce the resources. And, and they use those uh, non-renewable resources as, um, as they begin to produce these products for us as consumers, that which we, we demand. Um, However, with that said, businesses are really starting to look at what is my overall footprint 
um, and how can I save money by uh, number one setting some goals and I think Misty can sure talk about that because Dylan's has done some really cool things recently and um, setting some goals having some policy and making sure that the employees at the facility at the industry know what those policies are what those goals are and how they're going to work towards them and those would be sustainability goals environmental goals but those are also going to help the company be more efficient and save money so i would say the prospect is very good as we have through the last at least a decade or so um, gone through and industry has gone through some lean times and that has also forced their hand to look at wow my utilities are the biggest thing that is impacting my budget how can I be more energy efficient how can I use less water and um, we have an intern program that where we place engineering interns at industry and they do just that they baseline a lot of times it's their, their utilities depending on what the industry needs um, we work with uh, a lot of energy reduction water conservation uh, and then cost savings and over the last 13 years um, that we've been doing this program i'll just say it, throw out a couple of numbers our interns have identified 345 million gallons of water for reduction. And these are some large industries like Frito-Lay, who was 22 million gallons of, of that water right there. But they, they learned about that. They learned how much money they could save. With water, there's also energy. And, um, and they implemented it right away. Um, we're talking about over $13 million in cost savings. Now, sometimes it costs companies to implement these solutions. And they have to they have to look at their business case for that. And um, we always, uh, one of the things that our intern program does is always calculate the return on investment and um, uh, help, again, to kind of make that business case. We've got about 70 case studies on our website from our interns from different um, companies that we've been working with over the last 12 years. And those case studies are meant to be um, public so that other industry, we've worked with a lot of food processors, other industries can get on our website, see what Frito-Lay did, see what Smithfield did, see what these other companies have done, and look at, hey, maybe that's something that I could do we should look at at our facility. So uh, there is competition, there's no doubt, between these companies. A lot of times they're competitors. I work with aerospace right now too, but there's certain toxics in aerospace that they really wanna get rid of. They're really motivated to do it. We just have to help them find that way to do it that is, is economically um, uh, practical, uh, but at the same time has a major impact for both the environment but also their employee health. So I would say the atmosphere is good for companies looking at sustainability because they're putting the dollar figures with it, and they have to. We want them to stay in business, right? So they've got to be able to do that. Misty, why don't you share a little bit about what Dylan's, maybe how Dylan's got started with those efforts and, and what you've seen there. Sounds good. I took over the shrink manager job in about 2013 
And that was about the time that I took over the perishable donation program in our division. And about that time in 2013, overall, we were donating about 1 million pounds of food. And that's for the whole entire Dillon division. So right now we currently have 80 stores. Back in 2013, it would have been a few more than that, but I can't give you an exact number. I don't remember. Um, from 2013 to just last year, we'd upped that to about 1.4 million pounds of food. So we have a program in place in our stores. It's called the Perishable Donation Program. And it implements donations throughout the various perishable departments in the stores. We have refreshed it, we train it, we talk about it. We've gotten better, but I know we have a lot of more room to improve. And that's why just this last year, Kroger implemented a new program that they put in place. It's called Feed the Human Spirit. And part of that has to do with also food donations along with a lot of other goals that they have in place. So that's a little bit about the food donations. In about 2013 as well, I believe that's when we started working with the Pollution Prevention Institute, and we had our first intern. And she basically came into two of our stores. Does that sound right? I believe two of our stores. And she basically observed. She observed what our associates were doing, the impact of what they were ordering, what they were producing, and especially what they were throwing away. And it was very beneficial to us as a company because then you have that extra set of eyes. Because when you're working it day in, day out, you might not see it. And then you have somebody come in that doesn't have the experience in the store that can help us identify areas that we need to improve. So with her help, we actually noticed that we had this perishable donation program in place, but we really weren't donating produce. And that's huge. The food banks need produce, and a lot of that was just going to the landfills. So we actually implemented in the Wichita area a perishable donation program with the produce. And we started that. We also, she helped contact some of the local zoos, so Tanganyika and Sedgwick County Zoo, and what we could not donate, they actually came to pick up to feed for their animals. She helped us look at areas like our production in bakery and some of our production in delis and helped us see that you know, we as a business want to make sure that we have plenty of product out there for you all to buy, but we need to have a smart, good plan in place when it comes to producing that. So she helped us kind of get an eye of what we were throwing away and we worked on basically tools to help with production. So that was 2013. So in 2014, we had another intern and she did the same thing, focused in a couple of different stores. Her areas of focus were the same departments, but different areas. She helped us look at some other areas in Delhi. She helped us see in produce that we had an opportunity with placing things out for sale that it was summertime and we were trying to sell soup. So it's just that extra set of eyes which I think really helps people see what we need. We have implemented throughout, since I was in the position of shrink manager, we've had several different production tools that we have in place in several of our departments. Part of it 
was beneficial of our interns. Part of it was as a company, they saw that we needed to move towards that. We've had a lot of technology improvements that have helped us with our orders. It's helped us see what we sell, so we know that we're producing or ordering good orders. So we have the ordering side, we have the production side, but then it all comes down to the training side. And you have to constantly train and make sure that everybody understands the importance of why we're doing what we're doing. We are trying as a company to reduce our waste. So we've implemented not only the perishable donation program, but we have a company called Quest that actually picks up a lot of our waste that can go to animal feed. So that's been a huge improvement that we've done because we want to divert what we can out of the landfills. We have a plastic recycling to where you go into the stores, you can place your plastic bags, but also on the back end side, we recycle our plastic as well. Um, we have our cooking oil, we get that picked up as well, so that can be recycled and that's not going into the waste stream. We recycle cardboard, I could go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually curious <laughs> about several things, okay. so I encourage you to go on and on, but uh, just one thing that I'm kind of curious about is what do you do with seasonal items? You know, Valentine's Day comes and goes and you've got all those teddy bears. What happens to them? That is a very good question. What we do with seasonal items is typically the stores will contact a local school. They'll contact a local church and see if they want those items, so they'll donate them. Do they get a lot of takers? Most they, often, pretty good. yes. Just curious. Well, yep. we might go back to that, <laughs> to your list. <laughs> go ahead, Mike. Yeah, keep, keep trying. Okay, there you are. Um, my question would be the legal question, because years ago, uh, you know, it seemed like to me that restaurants and food stores and such could, could donate a lot more items and then the legal contests came in, the liability considerations came in, how much does that hamper your efforts? So as a company, since we're part of Kroger, Kroger is really, I don't know the word I want to use, but they want to ensure that we are proper. And so our partner is Feeding America. So the food banks that we donate to have to be part of the Feeding America group. And basically with food, Feeding America, they make sure that the food banks are properly trained so they follow food best practices. Um, they help give them education. They help set up the process in order to come to our stores and pick up. So that helps with the legality. And then a lot with donations, especially in the state of Kansas, is there's a, the Good Samaritan Act to where it helps protect you, I guess, for food donations. Our plan, sorry, I'm gonna keep going. Our perishable donation plan, we actually have a very strict laid out plan on what they can donate, what they can't donate. So it lays it out very good to where there's no real question as long as you're looking at the plan. Thank you. Um, Mike, when I was a kid, I learned this little jingle, recycle, reduce, reuse, and then some other words that I don't remember. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, a month or so ago on NPR, in fact, I heard a story about the hierarchy 
that first you want to reduce your use of things and then you reuse things that you already have and then you recycle, that it is this hierarchy. Um, will you tell us a little bit about, uh, I don't know, if you guys have any ways of educating people on that and what you see as far as people and, and their, um, I don't know, their tendencies to think, well, I'm, I'm going to recycle this bottled water, so I'm going to buy lots of bottled water. What do you see mm -hmm. there? Well, I'd, I'd hate for them to buy the bottled water for that purpose. You know, it takes about two liters of water to make a one liter bottle. <clears throat> and it takes about 1.4 liters of water to make the water or the pop that goes into that one liter bottle. So it's not a very efficient process. But as far as reduce, reuse, and recycle, uh, of course our education program uh, goes over that heavily with the kids. But it's really one of those things that everything works together. Yes, you want to reduce the amount of stuff that you use. If you don't need it, don't buy it, and then throw it away later. Um, you know, I've, I've known people that won't, leave, that won't eat leftovers. So whatever's left from their meal, they throw it away. Uh, I never had that problem because I never had very many leftovers. But, you know, the, the, the first key is to reduce the amount you're using. The second key, obviously, is to reuse as much as possible. From a reduction standpoint, you know, some of the figures that I've read say that in the United States, despite all the hunger in the world, in the United States we throw away 35 to 40 percent of the food that is produced. And what Kroger's doing and Dillon's is doing is a very fantastic step forward in taking care of that, but restaurants have to do these programs and other grocery stores have to do these programs because you know, if we cut that down to 20% waste or 10% waste, it's still not going to matter if we don't have clean water, uh, you know, if we don't have other things that uh, are necessary for us. So it's, you know, it's the whole process. But reducing the amount, obviously, you know, the energy that it takes to make a can can recycle 20 cans. Uh, we throw away 50 billion water bottles a year, and even though water bottles are one of the things that, you, that are the easiest to recycle. So obviously if we buy fewer water bottles, then we have less of a problem. If we recycle more cans, we have less of a problem. Uh, if we buy a water bottle, and I, I tend to do this, I, if I have a water bottle that somebody's given to me, then I will finish that off and I'll fill it up at the tap and I'll use it again and again and again, and I've got my mug also. But, uh, you know, maybe not a lot of people know this, but Wichita tap water is, in general, as good or better than almost all of the water that you buy at the grocery store including Dillon's. Dillon's is, might be a little better. I, I, I don't know. But, but it's good water. 
so why not refill and use that plastic water bottle again, you know? So that's reusing. Uh, I, I look at appliances and I wonder why is it we have to have computer chips and everything? You know, why would you have to have a computer chip to control the temperature on your stove when the thermostat on the stove did a fantastic job for generations and generations? Uh, I finally got rid of my stove that was in my house when I bought the house 40 years ago. I had to get rid of that stove last summer. It, so, you know, I don't know how old it was, but it was doing the job that I needed done. Uh, I've got a washer and a dryer that I've had since I bought the house and bought that set of the washer and the dryer. I've repaired each one time myself. Neither one of them has a, a computer chip within 20 feet of it, and they've done just fine, and they've lasted that long. But you buy washers and dryers today, and instead of expecting them to last 30 years, or as one quote that I was looking at said, you can expect to last as long as you own the house, which back then was a lot longer than most people own their houses. Uh, now maybe it's 10 years or 12 years that you can expect that appliance to last and, and then you have to go replace it. So, I mean, the whole thing, when you say what's the hierarchy, obviously it's reduce what you use, reuse what you've got as much as possible, recycle the things that you can't reuse, but let's go back to a little more simplicity so that we have longer lasting items in the first place. Well, the whole idea of fixing something that's broken rather than just getting a new thing, whatever it is. It's a different yeah. idea. I, I, I want to say one more thing uh, about that because, and this came actually from a government website, which surprised me, but uh, it says, imagine there was no more space for landfills and then you had to use your own backyard to dig a hole and put your trash. Would this change your habits? Is there a difference, do you think, between something that's good for the environment and something that's sustainable? Or are they just totally in, in alignment? Susan? If we look at uh, having something sustainable, it is keeping the environment clean, the habitats there for the animals, so that we have a future and we have the uh, resources for future generations. One thing we have to be careful of is you can look at a city and as it grows and expands, it's taking over farmland that used to be producing food for the people. But also when you put houses out there, all of a sudden people are realizing they're coming down with tick bites and flea bites and uh, mosquito bites that are spreading diseases that are becoming more and more prevalent as we're expanding out into the wild habitats. And then everyone's acting surprised about why is this happening? And it's because we're not thinking about good growth. We have what we call the donut effect. You see that here in Wichita where 
you spread out from the downtown and no one lives downtown anymore and that's starting to reverse here but how many boarded up buildings do you see downtown quite a few and people spread out to the new areas cut down all the trees and then plant new ones because it wasn't the right species that they wanted and they're spreading out and leaving this donut hole in the center that all of a sudden it's blight on the city and so we need better planning for the future and how we address the habitat and pollution of water is another issue that we need to look at. Do you happen to know if there are plans for the city to offer incentives for apartment complexes or other large buildings to go solar or use other sustainable energies? I'm with the yeah. county. <laughs> so do good point. So I, I, I do not know what they have the city has planned. No. Um, uh, oh go ahead something there um, and I don't know the city of Wichita itself does recycle its office paper and things like that but going back to your question about is sustainability and environmental are they always the same thing and one of the things that that I wonder about is uh, pesticides and uh, some of the things that they do with crops uh, and so on and so forth because you know we've we've increased the yields from the fields a great deal so that we've continued to be ahead of the curve as far as population growth and and that sort of thing and that's wonderful but we're losing our bee population which you know could be catastrophic for all of those fields uh, somewhere in there well in my sister was telling me that she was putting in a new lawn and she was talking to uh, the guy about grasses and such and he was telling her you know you can use these natural methods for weed control and such he said when they developed the weed control for lawns they couldn't figure out how to keep it from killing the clover which is actually a very good plant. It puts nitrogen in the soil and so on and so forth, but they couldn't figure out how to keep the weed control products from killing the clover, so what did they do? They added clover to the weed list and said, this is a good thing, we're gonna kill off the clover. You know, that's, so yeah, you know, you have to have sustainability in, in your crop production and so on and so forth, but there are other things that need to be taken into account. Um, if a sustainable action isn't a good return on investment, um, should it still be undertaken? Are there ways that you help uh, businesses to consider that, Nancy? We do. Um, we will list all the different opportunities and recommendations that we have, but ultimately it's up to the business to make that investment. And I will tell you through our program, we haven't had a whole lot of funding to do follow-up, but we did do follow-up about four years ago of the first uh, eight years or so of our program. And there are some bit, pretty big projects out there that our interns have worked on that are pretty costly. And uh, so we recommend them from an environmental standpoint, but um, the return on investment, most companies want a return on investment of about two years. That's pretty short. 
Um, but we do have companies who will implement, they have to set aside capital, uh, their capital assets to implement uh, projects up to five, six years return on investment. So we make the argument for, for the life cycle of the product, right, and for the situation because certain things down the line might end up costing them more if they don't end up taking care of that sediment control problem that's causing all kinds of stormwater issues for them now. Um, or that chemical that they're using, if they can be, begin to uh, get rid of that, uh, there may be some um, economical benefits down the line as well as health benefits down the line. But they ultimately have to make that decision. Um, and most of them, if it's one to two year payback, it's a no-brainer, they'll do it. But much beyond that, um, they've got to run it up the flagpole and, and make a plan for it, which is what we would probably do in our homes, right? So the same type of thing. Uh, and along that same line, Spirit Aero System is buying wastewater, treated wastewater from the city of Wichita to use in their processing now, which is saving them money because it's cheaper and it's reusing water. So that's something we need to look at more as a society is gray water or wastewater for irrigation, golf par uh, courses, parks, other areas could use that. It's, it's nothing we're going to drink. And uh, what, what, what are we doing with it now? We're dumping it in the river and it's going downstream and other people may be pumping that out to treat it as drinking water. So we need to really look at how we use our resources better and for what use instead of using potable water for industry gray water seems a better choice great example i was just going to follow on that last week sweden released a beer i don't know if you guys saw the sewage beer out there but uh, uh carlton um, brewery i think it's called in in sweden and um they are taking wastewater, and they're not alone. I guess there is one other California brewery. But taking the wastewater, we were all debating amongst our pollution prevention community is that pollution prevention. Um, but it, it definitely is, uh, it's not always source reduction or pollution prevention, but it's still sometimes a, a great idea because you're still reducing that footprint. When you look at wastewater that has to go that is uptaken for drinking water and goes through all the treatment process versus being able to use it as irrigation, which I know at Willowbend they've been doing that and Chisholm Trail uh, Utility has been doing that for a couple, probably a couple of decades now pretty successfully. So that is really important. But as we see it um, come into some of our other areas, like with beer, and um, there's an ick factor that has to do with that, but, but um, We'll have to see how that all, all comes about. Misty, I want to go back to Dylan's for a minute here um, to ask if uh, the stores are considering a program to reduce the amount of packaging in, in their retail goods, more bulk bins, for example, instead of small bags of rice, anything like that? They have looked at different bulk type items we some of our stores have bulk food sections and here recently and not i wish i had a percentage to tell you but there was a percentage of our stores that actually have bulk meal solution sections 
that I know some stores here in Wichita have that as well to where you can just help yourself to those areas. Overall packaging, I know as a company, they're looking at ways to use um, packaging that has less of a footprint. And their goal is, I believe, to have it to be 20% to where you can, um, recycle is not the word I want, compost. Because they're using less packaging to do the same thing. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's what it's the compostability of it that they're looking at. Yes, yeah. So they're looking at doing that in about twenty percent of what Kroger, the Kroger label brand items, is what they're looking at right now. So that will help with the footprint it leaves behind. But as for just going to more bulk, not anything beyond what they're doing. Uh, go ahead. I was going to add, a, it's been a couple of years since I read the article, and, and we have not worked with Walmart, your competitor, but we've probably talked about this before. Walmart has instituted programs with their, um, um, with their suppliers that have said, we don't want all your packaging, that you, and this could be groceries, but it can also be some of their retail items like um, televisions, computers, furniture, towels, whatever. Um, some of the same things you're selling at your big market stores. Um, but they've said to their suppliers, if you uh, send us less packaging with your items, we will give you the end cap position. So we will put you in the higher sales position. And so they've required that their suppliers do that. And that is a great way to motivate people that you're buying from um, to reduce the footprint that they then pass on to you. Um, another thing that they do is they require if a computer is going to be sold at Walmart, the manufacturer, the supplier, had to set it so that the sleep mode is, our, is, is set so that when the consumer buys the computer, you know, that screen doesn't say, stay on, it goes automatically to the sleep mode. So it's more energy efficiency uh, more energy efficient from the start. So that's a great way to work, that businesses can work with their supplier um, so that they're not uh, being impacted by all the materials that are coming into their facilities. Mike, can you talk a little bit about alternate packaging options, what's out there, or is that something that, uh, that you're pretty aware of at all? Well, yeah. It's not an area I've put a lot of thought in, I will admit that, uh, other than reducing the amount of packaging. I mean, at the recycling center, we always have to be careful when boxes come in before we throw them in the baler to make sure there isn't any styrofoam in there because so, so often there's styrofoam or there's plastic or something like that. And uh, people send out a an item that's three inches square in a 12 inch square box and they pack it in styrofoam peanuts and uh, there's nothing that we can do with that. We could, we could recycle styrofoam, but by the time we got enough styrofoam packed down enough to make 40,000 pounds on a semi-trailer, which is what the semis require, uh, <laughs> you know, that would be an impossible task. So we just try not to use them. But I think 
You know, uh, what Misty was talking about as far as uh, packaging that will break down more quickly makes a lot of sense. Packaging that you can throw it into the compost pile with everything else makes a lot of sense. Uh, but also packaging that is designed to be reused for other things. You know, there are, there are quite a few plastic bags, actually, that you buy stuff at the store. They're in a plastic bag. You can use that stuff. And then you can wash the plastic bag, and you can use the plastic bag for other things, for refrigerator uh, storage of your food or whatever. I mean, when I do get plastic bags from Dillon's, uh, we'll just say Dillon's, uh, I can use those, I can take them back to Dillon's and use them again to get my groceries, or I can use them as the trash bag instead of buying trash bags at the store, or you know, I can put uh, the dirty clothes in them when I'm on vacation and bring them back and so on and so forth. There are lots of things you can use that stuff for. Uh, really, you get back to this idea that if you had to put it in your backyard when you were done with it, how many things can you figure out how to do with it? Uh, how many th things can you repair? How many things can you do without? But how many new uses can you find for what used to be trash? And this is, this has to be a mindset change. And, and we've had a lot of it over the years. It used to be, that the people that put recycle bins out on their front yard to be picked up were the ones that felt like they were out of place because the peer pressure was, oh, you don't put a recycling bin. Now, the people that don't put recycling bins out are probably the ones that feel a little bit out of place. And we want to get to that point where, you know, constantly I see people they wash their hands at the sink at the uh, assisted living center where my mother is, and they'll wash their hands at the sink. They'll reach over and grab one, two, three, maybe even four paper towels. They'll run across their hands a little bit, and they'll throw them in the trash. Well, you don't need three or four paper towels, you know, but the mindset hasn't changed there yet. You know, we just gradually have to change that mindset and show people, hey, it's okay for you to be concerned about the environment. It's okay for you to be concerned how many of these things you use and throw away. It's okay to care about this stuff like we do. Um, is there a difference in the amount of recycling that goes on between private collection of recyclables and city or municipal programs that mandate recycling? Um, and should we prefer that Wichita Institute's mandatory recycling? What is your opinion there? Do you want to start there, Mike? Well, when the Recycle Bank program came in, and, and keep in mind when ProKansas started, one of our goals was to have curbside recycling all over Wichita. We didn't want to be sitting there recycling uh, forever and be the only or one of the only recycling places. We wanted it spread around. Recycle Bank came in. They offered recycling. 
um, they would load their trucks, they would, they would bale the uh, materials, and it all came in together, what they call single stream. They didn't have people separated. So it came in together, they would bale it, they would put it on semis, they'd drive it 500 miles to Texas, where they had a single stream uh, processing plant, and process it there. In the meantime, all packed together, you got a lot of contamination, you got a lot of inefficiency. Now they have a, a, a single stream place in Hutchinson, so it only has to be driven 50 miles from there. Uh, so, you know, it's not as efficient as I would prefer, but it's much better than when nobody had recycling available or very few people had recycling available. At Pro Kansas, everything's separated nothing's packed together and contaminated and so we have good quality trash is what we have for uh, uh, the buyers to to buy and recycle these it's not quite as easy to recycle with a single stream uh, because of the contamination but it's available to a lot more people so you know i'm glad that we have that when we look at uh, recycling in our area over time, remember it used to be curbside recycling with a small blue bin and you'd put the paper bundled together and the plastic and the glass all separate. And EPA has done nationwide studies showing that easier you can make something like recycling, the more people will do it. And that's where the single stream came in, where if you make it easier, where it's a cart that people can put all of the stuff in the cart to recycle and let the material recovery facility sort it out there. And yes, there will be contamination, but they try to pull that out. Uh, you can get better products and still have more people recycling. I worked with the city of Derby when they were going out for contract back in 2009 to have one company pick up all of the trash in the city and the people saw their quarterly bills drop from over $80 a quarter to $40 a quarter, which included curbside recycling and a coupon for bulky waste collection. And the reason it did it is because instead of having a couple of dozen companies running around the streets and you have five different companies going down your road to pick up trash, you have one company going down the road picking up every house on the block instead of one house on this block drive two blocks, pick up the next house, is more efficient with one company going through, and the prices went down. Out of the 20 cities in um, Sedgwick County, there's only six that do not have some sort of a contract with a hauler to collect trash. So it's improving, but it needs to be even better over time. Um, Susan, can you talk a little, uh, oh yeah, go ahead. Um, when, they, when they take the trash out to a transfer station, for instance, or they go through the single stream, uh, well, and, and I know a lot of this probably happens with a single stream, but when they go out to the transfer station, do they pull out lots of material that they can sell elsewhere or, I mean, how, how exactly does that work? No, they do. So you're referring to the you're referring to the 
regular trash that goes there to the transfer station? Yeah, I, I guess uh, I really am as far as the transfer station is concerned because no, you, know, they you do can not have quite a few other things. Just there. like the landfills, it, it's not pulled out part of that is safety because you can have sharp material sticking out that you'd have to walk over to get to that item that you saw. They will pull out tires, but besides that, uh, no, it all goes to the landfill. So they, so they don't have one of those large magnets like they use at the auto salvages where they could run no. across and, and pick up metals and that sort of thing? No, I've not been to material recovery facilities on the west coast and on the east coast, and the transfer stations and landfills, and they all do it differently. Uh, in California, they'll actually pull all the wine bottles out and sell them back to the wineries. So they clean them up and reuse them for put bottling more wine. So it depends kind of your local market as well, and that will influence it. Can you talk a little bit about policy or legislation relating to sustainability, whatever, you know, situations that we have now or, or things that might be coming around the bend that could affect this landscape? And Nancy, if you want to jump in there too as well, uh, go for it. Yeah, Susan can talk from a local perspective, but um, honestly, mm, how many years ago was it? Um, time flies. Some five years ago or so, um, we weren't allowed to really use that word um, with any of the politicians. It was a big, there was a big problem in Topeka with um, certain politicians that did want to talk sustainability and it became a political hot potato. Uh, and I know in our group, we just decided we'll, we've always done it. So it's a way of life for us. Um, and the businesses that we work with, it's part of our daily work, but we call it pollution prevention or source reduction, something else. Um, we uh, also don't necessarily use some of the words like climate change, but we use greenhouse gas reduction because you can measure that, and that's actually what we're reducing in a lot of our projects that we do with our interns. So, um, so from a policy standpoint, I'm not seeing much of that out of Topeka at the state level. However, industry is leading the way with some of it. And that is the way Kansas tends to be. Kansas tends to be hands-off and have the independent communities and the, with recycling and with waste management and all types of things. Independent communities um, lead the way. Businesses lead the way. Our universities are working on that. There's no doubt. Um, um, but from straight out of Topeka, not to my knowledge. Same thing locally. When I told someone, my boss, that I was going to, was invited to be on panels to talk about climate change, energy, and sustainability, he said, nice working with you. It, sustainability is a four-letter word for some politicians to this day. And uh, you don't see what's wrong with preserving resources so future generations can have them, but some people just think they should be able to do whatever they want with the current resources and who cares about the future. And that's the wrong attitude, and that's what's gonna get us in trouble. Go ahead. I'm gonna chime in here for a moment as well. I um, was part of a different committee that ended up merging with the Food Policy Council in Reno County. And so I was 
very intrigued on what the Food Policy Council was working on. And like Nancy said, it's a lot more on the local end. But I know there's a lot of people and organizations out there that are really working towards policy and change and sustainability. So it's exciting to be a part of that, but it is very, very new. So there might be more of that down the road. Did you? Yeah, go ahead. All right. One of the things that worries me are the microbeads that get into our water, they get into the, our food Can animals. Can you describe that, what those are a little and bit? A, a microbead is like uh, if you have whitening toothpaste, then there are little beads that are in the toothpaste that scrub the enamel and so on and so forth. And they have these beads in, in uh, uh, soaps and various things. I'm, I'm not really sure how many different things. Uh, are they all made of plastic? They're all made of plastic. And, uh, but they're tiny, tiny, tiny beads, and you can't filter them out necessarily. Uh, so, you know, they go from the toothpaste and the soap and so on and so forth to the water supply and, and into the rivers and then the, into the fish and other animals and so on and so forth. And nobody really knows what the end result's going to be from this, except that we always all have this plastic in our bodies now and it gets into the cells and so on and so forth. And, and there has been discussion uh, about reducing or eliminating the microbeads and I think we need to be talking more about that. Um, you know, I'll use a different toothpaste if I need to, but I, I don't think I need the microbeads. Um, one of the other things that we've talked about is in March, China quit buying a lot of our trash. And I say trash because we were sending them our computers and they were, we were sending them uh, all kinds of things that for them to process it and recycle it, it was creating a lot of uh, pollution in China. We were sending them all, uh, a large percentage of our plastic, particularly the miscellaneous plastic, not the milk jugs, not the water bottles and so on, but the packaging and things like that. And when you get down past the water bottles and the milk jugs and the detergent bottles, there's a lot of variability in the chemicals and such that go into a particular bottle or packaging material. So it's difficult to recycle because it's not standardized. Uh, we used to have a guy here in town who was able to get past that and make parking curbs and, and picnic tables and things like that, but nobody seemed to have been able to duplicate what he was doing. But so it's one of the things that should be done and you really can't do it on a local level and you probably can't do it on a state level and you might not be able to do it on a federal level so it would be good that industry would take the lead on that would be to standardize the chemicals and such that go into packaging so that those items are easier to recycle into new packaging because they'd be standardized materials. Right now, I mean, we used to take it at the recycling center, 
the, the threes and the fours and the sixes and the sevens as you look at the triangle, we can't take it anymore because we can't sell it to anybody. We can't send it anywhere to, uh, except to the landfill. And Roger Lyon, our operations manager, he was talking to another place. He said, can't you just take one truckload because we got a truckload sitting down there. And the guy says, I've got 50 truckloads sitting on my lot and I don't know what to do with them. So standardizing those materials would be a good thing for industry to take a lead on. You mentioned microbeads and water pollution, but there's something that concerns me even more, and that's the medicines that are going into our water systems. Uh, think of it, you take a medicine, your body only uses so much of it, the rest of it you flush down the toilet. And you also have people who actually if someone dies, they may flush the old drugs down the toilet. Wastewater treatment plants don't treat that, those drugs. It just goes straight into the river or whatever water body they're dumping that into. There have been a lot of studies done recently on fish, and they've discovered in Colorado you have male fish with ovaries. Uh, so you're having a lot of trouble, not just in Colorado, but other areas where you have fish with both sexes in each fish. Think of the hormones that are going into the rivers, not just from our bodies, but what you give feed cattle and other animals out there, that their wastewater ends up in the water system, and then that gets into the fish. So, uh, some countries have noticed a huge decrease in the amount of human males that are being born. So we, we need to look at the medicines and how we can get rid of them better. Now something my department's going to do next year is work with uh, local law enforcement agencies on putting in pharmaceutical drop boxes where no one knows who dropped the medicine in, whether it's legal or illegal, and we will dispose of it properly. And we're starting that program next year. Uh, the question was, we take those at the household hazardous waste. Yes, we do, but only the pharma normal pharmaceuticals and over-the-counter drugs. We cannot take controlled substances, your codeines, your morphines, opiates, but we need law enforcement involved. And because of that, um, needing the law enforcement, that's why I'm working with the law enforcement. It's kind of like a mailbox that's locked, controlled, so people can drop off the material is at a law enforcement agency, so that makes it legal. And we'll pay, my department will pay for the uh, boxes and the disposal of the material. Um, Nancy, do you have any idea of penalties for businesses that uh, produce a lot of pollution uh, work as well as incentives or better than incentives in some cases? Do you have any uh, idea of the effectiveness of penalties? Than the effectiveness of penalties. <laughs> yeah, um, sometimes they're not effective, you guys. I, I have worked with industry, um, for the most part, um, I have worked with industry who've said, well, what is the penalty for that? Um, and at that point, I think, well, maybe you can research that, but um, uh, they're going to do certain things. They're, some of the penalties do make sense, some of them do not. Um, I will tell you that our large industries are very regulated, and they have staff um, who is very, very careful to make sure that they are in compliance. Our large industries do a really good job 
with uh, environmental management. They're, they, they do have large emissions, but they're always looking for ways to reduce those emissions. Um, there's a lot of reporting now federally through um, something called the Toxic Release Inventory and then other tools related to that where you can look in your own neighborhood and you can get what's called a RISI score, a risk analysis score. There's all kinds of enviro maps and things that EPA is uh, connected to this data so that you can look at what's the environmental health impact on my home if I'm located in this area or this zip code. Um, industries are very aware of that. And uh, this tool is, is also public so that other industries can say, wow, this food manufacturer reduced their water by X amount uh, in you know, 2017, what are we doing? Um, as far as the penalties go, penalties from EPA are very, very high and very detrimental. They can sometimes put businesses out of business. Um, in Kansas, Kansas uh, Department of Health and Environment has the delegation for all of our regulations or, or the majority of them when it comes to hazardous waste management, air emissions, and water discharges. Um, there's a few exceptions there. But for the most part, um, KDHE is very good to work with. They have um, the attitude that they want businesses to be in compliance and uh, will work with them on plans to get into compliance, generally giving them an opportunity to do that. And then if they, but if they come back again and they find the same exact violations, um, then they really have uh, no choice but then to find them. But the, cans the KDHE fines um, and penalties are much less than EPA. Um, I want to go back to you, Misty, for a moment to talk about um, plastic sacks. Um, could Dylan's possibly eliminate plastic sacks for groceries as other grocery stores have done elsewhere in the country? Is that something on their radar? As for elimination, I'm not entirely sure if that will be any time soon. I know that they are constantly looking at plastic bags. They're looking at how they're made, the cost of bags, how many bags are carryouts used when they actually sack your orders. They're, yes, they have training processes in place. They have follow-up processes in place to ensure, but as everybody knows that has shopped at Dillon's, we struggle with that. So they're constantly looking at bags, but there has been no talk that I'm aware of as to eliminating them at this time. Um, do you all see, um, I don't know, a new energy maybe among millennials to get involved, or is there is that sort of a misconception that uh, millennials are out there wanting to change the world? I uh, work at WSU and at Fringe University, and what I've noticed is a lot of the millennials are into more stuff. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> it's not enough to have a cell phone and a laptop and a tablet. You also have to have something on your wrist so you know when someone's contacted you on the cell phone or the tablet or your laptop. Uh, 
And you know, more stuff means more resources. It's not enough to have one TV in your house. You need one in the kitchen and the bedroom and bathroom and everything else. So and, and they all have to be 50 inches. And 50 inches, right. So, uh, so what I've noticed is they, uh, quite a few care about the environment, but they also care about more stuff and having more toys. So there's a disconnect between yes. what will help and what and the lifestyle that they at are least living. what I've been exposed to, yes. Interesting. And it, um, let's see, I don't always agree with that, but I might live in a bubble too, because I don't teach at Friends or, or WSU. I, I do work um, at K-State, I do work with pollution prevention interns who have applied for our programs, and so they've already got a mindset. Um, my family that I'm around, I have one millennial, 23, and I have a 30-year-old, and then I have an 18-year-old. Um, all of them, because of the house they've grown up in, are, um, are very conscientious about the resources that they use and very conservative, but they're also, that has a lot to do with finances and saving money and things too. So, and, I, and looking at their circle of friends, for the most part, um, I've seen a lot of good things. I definitely, on the technology, um, is, is big, but I love technology too. And there's just always a balance, you know, there's a balance in our lives between what, um, what we need and what we want. And so, uh, teaching that because um, there are certain things that make us much more efficient, right, in our lives and, uh, and actually have less of an impact overall when you look at a life cycle. Um, but um, my experience, personal experience, has been, has been different and br a little brighter outlook. Okay. Now at the recycling center, We've been very concerned because most of the volunteers are 50 years and older. Most of the people that bring recyclables in are, you know, maybe not 50 years or older, but they're 35, 40 to 90 years of age. Uh, we do get some young people from time to time. Uh, Several of the young people that came in that I've talked to said, I just moved here from Washington and I, ha I couldn't believe that there wasn't a better recycling program in Kansas, you know, but they'd grown up with it somewhere else. Um, there's one of the things that I, bl that I blame and it's, and it's happened over generations and generations is the advertising industry because we went from the Model T to General Motors uh, creating this planned obsolescence where every four years or five years they would change the model of the car and then they'd develop colors and gosh, you gotta get this new model, you get rid of the old model, you gotta get this new model and then they do it with appliances and now it's, it's cell phones and so on and so forth and if you don't get that new cell phone every year or every six months when it comes out, you're behind the times and people more and more buy into that. Um, but, you know, whatever the reason is, uh, and our education program is doing its best to uh, educate the, the young kids uh, 
in the elementary schools and the high schools, but you know, whatever the reason is, we don't seem to have as many young people participating in the recycling programs as we do have older people, and we need to change that. So from the store perspective, what I've seen just from the time that I started working with the Perishable Donation Program to now is that we get a lot more questions. People are more interested in why we're throwing that away. What are you going to do with that? Why don't we have a different plan and process? Why? I mean, they ask questions, which is really good because it gets everybody thinking about what's happening, and then we can really educate more on what we can do and maybe come up with better solutions on things we can do. We also have events where we'll get with the food bank and we might go help sort or package. We'll have local events too, and we get a lot more younger people involved in that. Now granted, technology-wise, you see a lot of pictures and a lot of selfies and they post things, but at least they're involved. So hopefully the recycling center can get more involvement, but we, we've seen an increase in that overall. Um, you were talking about balance uh, earlier, and I mean, finding that balance can be difficult when, you know, for example, those uh, those newfangled computer chip laden appliances, um, some of them actually increase energy efficiency. So how do you find that proper balance between maintaining old technology that might be inefficient and replacing it when we have better options? How do we, how can we know what how do we even go about finding that out? Well, I mean, just one example, um, and this may not fit for everything, but I know a few years ago when we were looking at our old refrigerator and should we replace it or not, EnergyStar.gov um, actually has a tool. Um, they have a lot of tools if you're looking at energy efficiency where you could put in the make and model in the year of your refrigerator and figure out, um, you know, from a re both return on investment as well as energy, um, the, the energy cost balance on whether um, it had reached its life end and was actually costing more and using more energy um, than um, you would save if you had purchased a new one. So there are tools out there to do that. I think we all need to um, think about that, that balance, and, and it's different for everyone, but to, to pause and think about the balance of how much food you buy at the grocery store versus looking at your refrigerator and your cabinet and eating what's there first before we go buy. Um, the balance of looking at um, buying a large quantity of food that might end up going to waste before you can eat it versus buying a smaller quantity of food that is packaged, but it's packaged so that it stays fresh and I'm going to be able to consume it. Um, there's an economic balance there too. Um, one of the things that we have an older air conditioner and we just financially not ready to replace that yet, right? So we've decided, okay, we're sleeping downstairs in the, you know, this summer, and that's kind of our balance. That's not a problem for us. It's, we gotta move out of our room, but not a problem. We're gonna sleep downstairs because it's five or 10 degrees, you know, cooler almost. So, um, <clears throat> but because we don't wanna 
increase our thermostat upstairs or, or decrease it rather in the summer. Um, we, we set it at what is Energy Star recommendations and we want to keep it there. But it's nice and cool downstairs, so we're going to sleep down there. So there's that balance that you find in your family as you educate and as you go out to eat, as you go to the grocery store, as you um, adjust your thermostat and make sure it's programmed right, as you buy a new light bulb because um, LEDs are extremely efficient and you can buy them for um, oh under $5 now versus you know five years ago they were $10 or more. But there's still incandescents out there that um, are more efficient but they contain mercury and if you look at the life cycle on them, um, it's very, very poor. So you want to read that and you want to find the balance for your home. Did you want to? Okay. Uh, Misty, I have an audience question about ugly produce. Will Dylan's, uh, do they have any plans or, or thoughts about selling ugly produce in the future? With ugly produce, we actually, the process in our stores is they're supposed to cull ugly produce. So they'll go through that throughout the day and pull any produce, and then they should be donating that. We also have our markdown programs in our produce areas. Typically, if you're not aware of it, you'll have to look for it. It's in the back of the department. There's a little rack. And the things that they will try to sell, and it, there's a standard of items we can, they will put in red bags, and they will actually sell those at a reduced cost in the bag. Um, just a couple more questions before we wrap up here tonight. I want to try to get through all the audience questions. Um, if bottled water negatively impacts the environment to the extent that we encourage people to reduce their consumption, why do we still allow manufacturers to produce bottled water? Anybody? <laughs> Jump on that one. Yeah. Now, okay, I don't see how you can control private industry and the products if you have a call for it. They've done a lot of tests on bottled water and it is tap water from some other city. And they've, they've used this in uh, restaurants with tests on which water tastes better and telling them that it's a real expensive water and pour it in the glass and all and the people are raving about it. They got it from the sink back, you know, in the back. So. Uh, it's kind of a mindset that people think it's better if you tell them it's better and they'll pay more for it when there was no need at all to begin with. Uh, bottled water may have its place in the tr transportation of it and is not breakable. And let's say you're out on a marathon and you're running and they hand you a bottle of water as you're running along. In some cases it may make sense, but even what you were saying earlier, Mike, about putting more tap water in and in, it's slowly leaching that plastic in and you're drinking some of that plastic as you're doing that. So we, we need to be careful in that way as well. We're, I, I like the idea of reusing it, but you're still getting that plastic slowly leaching into that water you're drinking each time. But I've got microbeads in me anyway, <laughs> so what? It helps you no, float uh, when you swim. The, yeah. uh, the, <laughs> You, you should go to, and I think the website's still there, the website is called The Story of Stuff, 
and they have a number of different stories. One of them is the story of bottled water, and it talks about how uh, these companies, Pepsi and Coca-Cola and so on and so forth, they, they were seeing a reduction in their sales of soda pop, and they were concerned about losing sales of soda pop, and they said, well, you know, what else can we do? And they were brainstorming, of course, they had juices and teas and stuff, and somebody said, well, why don't we sell water? And they created the ad campaign that, that you know, a lot of advertising is fear advertising. Uh, it's kind of like some of the lawyer commercials that we <laughs> see on TV. <clears throat> but the fear was, look what's in the water you drink from the tap. Oh, it's got all these chemicals, and it's got all these, oh, and it's dangerous, and so buy this water, this bottled water. And they educated the public to think that if they weren't drinking bottled water, they were drinking something inferior or something dangerous, and that's where the industry came from. And, you know, we just have to figure out a way to re-educate the public back to, hey, it's safe enough to drink water from the tap. And then there's the whole issue of straws. And they used to be paper, right? And now there's plastic straws everywhere. Um, are they going back to paper straws? Companies or? A few companies are going back to paper straws. Well, that's, that's something. Um, what I always like to ask kind of to, to finish off our evenings is what we can do as individuals to make a difference. Um, what, I mean, maybe avoid bottled water. Uh, what other thoughts do we have on, on things that everyone can do to make a difference? Well, Nancy mentioned earlier that the, uh, there are websites out there to help you in purchasing uh, appliances. Also, there are websites out there for your carbon footprint and your water footprint. So you can go, to, and there's more than one site for each. I'd suggest using more than one. And they'll ask questions about your lifestyle, how far you drive, uh, your house, uh, the energy efficiency of the house. And you can determine what your carbon footprint is, how big of a difference you are making right now, and what can you do to improve that footprint. Same with uh, water. How much water are you using? How many bathrooms do you have? How many people in the house? And all, and ways to lower that. So I think it comes down to education and what people can do individually to lower the amount of resources that they use and their footprint on the earth. And I, and I would... Um, challenge people to watch a video called Love Letter to Food. Um, it has, um, and Missy's smiling because um, we've been promoting that video for uh, a few years now, but it, it literally sends a great message um, to your employees, to your family. I have my kids' friends watch it. They know never to waste food at my house. And they, they take as much as you want, but eat what you take, right? And we actually have a little sign even at our, at our um, employee potluck, um, the same thing. Please take as much as you want, but eat what you take. And there's a lot of different things that uh, we can do in our home 
as well as at work and conferences that we attend. And uh, this love letter to food talks a lot about all the water and the energy and the chemical that goes into growing our food, putting it on a truck to transport it to a processor, processing it, then we truck it again to our grocery stores, then we go pick it up at our grocery stores only to get rid of 40% of it. 40% of the food in the U.S. that is growing is, goes uneaten. Um, and yet we have one in eight families that are food insecure. So um, um, that is a, a huge way, just looking at your food. Uh, it helps your budget too, but looking at your food is another big way that people don't always think, but it's got a water, it's got an energy, and it's got a chemical impact in addition to, to food uh, impact. Yeah, I would say gradually change people's mindset. Um, it's easier to get things done on a gradient. You start slow and you work your way up instead of beating somebody over the head and trying to get them to change completely all of a sudden. Businesses, I mean, there are a lot of large businesses that have very good recycling programs and reusing programs and so on and so forth. A lot of the smaller businesses, it's a little more difficult to set these things up. And so I would say smaller businesses start by recycling your cardboard or reducing the amount of paper that you use and recycling your other papers. Uh, use paper cups instead of plastic bottles and that sort of thing. But, uh, I mean, these companies take in huge amounts of cardboard and the inventories that they get, and that's one of the easiest things to recycle. Paper itself, you know, I've got the old list of what we take down at Pro Kansas on one side here and my notes about what I want to talk about on the other side of this paper because I try to use both sides of every sheet of paper uh, when I can. You know, it takes 6,000 gallons of water to create a ton of paper. Uh, included in that is also bleach because how do you think this paper got white? And then you have to do something with that water that's full of bleach. So, you know, if we can reduce that. But whether it's your own personal recycling program and reusing program or it's a school or a business or whatever, take it where it is take it small and then increase and then increase and gradually the peer pressure just like recycling in the neighborhood uh, the peer pressure is going to go to the other side and everybody's going to need to consider sustainability as they live their lives I hope. so personally for me it's been to become involved whether that is at whatever impact you want to be involved of just being part of something, being a chair in something, just being involved in something and then really educating yourself on that area so you can help make a difference with others. Um, one of the things that has impressed me with Kroger's sustainability plan was that they put forth the plan and they put goals and they do follow-up work on it. 
And so personally, that's what I've tried to do myself is say, okay, this year, this is what I'm going to focus on. This is what I'm going to learn. And this is how I'm going to help the community. So just to be involved in education is the biggest suggestion that I can give. Thank you. Great suggestions, wonderful discussion. Let's have a big round of applause for our panel. And thank you guys. We had a lot of great questions from you. Um, join us for the next quarter of the year. We'll be talking about education in, uh, from various angles in, for the next three months. So come back to Engage ICT, Democracy on Tap for those discussions. And thank you guys so much. Our panel is going to stick around for a few minutes if you want to come chat with them. Thank you again for coming. We really, we really appreciate you. Have a good evening. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineer is Mark Statzer, Beth Golay is the producer, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.